turn with me in your Bibles or your Bible app, what have you, to John chapter 12. That's where we're going to be this morning as we pick up in our study here, the gospel according to John, the invisible made visible. John chapter 12, if you don't have a Bible, we do have some in the back um, next to the sound booth, grab one. Uh, If you don't actually have one, please keep it, read it. Uh, The Bible is God's gift to us, His Word, and uh, that's our gift to you, that we can give it to you. So John chapter 12, we're going to be in verses 1 through 19, but right now I'm going to read 1 through 11, and we'll go through 19 as we study the text. So John says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. And Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there in Bethany, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. All the kids can go head out to Children's Church have some fun back there. Uh, if anyone hasn't been checked in, if any parents haven't checked a kid in, uh, there is a tablet on the left-hand side as you go out the door. If you could do that, that's helpful to us. A way we can know who's there and keep things safe and helps with attendance as well. So. A rabbi and a priest get into a car accident. And it's a bad one. Both cars are totally demolished. But amazingly, neither one of the guys is hurt. And after they crawl out of their cars, the rabbi sees the priest's collar and he says, So you're a priest. Well, I'm a rabbi. And just look at our cars. There's nothing left. But we're unhurt. This must be a sign from God. God must have meant that we should meet and be friends and live together in peace the rest of our days. And the priest replies, I agree with you completely. This must be a sign from God. And the rabbi continues and says, and look at this, here's another miracle. My car is completely demolished, but my bottle of Morgan David wine did not break Surely God wants us to drink this wine and celebrate our good fortune. So the rabbi hands the bottle to the priest still sitting on the curb next to his destroyed car. And the priest agrees and takes a few big swigs and hands the bottle back to the rabbi. 
The rabbi takes the bottle, puts the cork back in it, and hands it back to the priest. The priest asks, are you not going to have any? And he says, no, I think I'm going to wait for the police. (laughs) Signs and miracles. Signs and miracles. All the way back last September when when we began this study of the gospel according to John, we see Jesus displaying his glory, showing who he is, and the way in which he does this many times is through signs and miracles. We see the first miracle in John chapter 2 when Jesus turns water into wine at the wedding in Cana. He doesn't just change it to any wine, he changes it to the best wine. And it says that his disciples saw this miracle and they believed in him. Then we fast forward to John chapter 4. And this official, he comes and he finds Jesus and he asks him, really he begs him, heal my son, he's ill. He almost demands it of Jesus. And Jesus says to him, unless you see the signs and wonders, you will not believe. Jesus sends the man on his way, tells him, your son would live. And when the official sees that it's true, he believes in Jesus. Jesus shows his glory. The official believes in him. John chapter 5. John tells us of a man who is invalid for 38 years. 38 years. He, and he, he had been lying next to this pool of Bethesda, just longing for someone to help him get into the pool so that he may be healed by its waters. But Jesus speaks to him. He tells him, get up, take your bed, and walk, and the man is healed. John 6, we see another miracle. A crowd starting to form around Jesus. Thousands of people flocking because they see his signs and his miracles. But dinner time approaches. And there's thousands of people. They need to be fed. And they have five loaves and two fish. No small task for Jesus. He just does it. Or no big task, I should say. He feeds them with the five loaves and two fish. And there's leftovers. Thousands upon thousands he feeds. And shows his power in that way. In that same chapter... The disciples are making their way across the sea. They're on their way to Capernaum. They don't know where Jesus is. They don't know what's going on until they get about three to four miles out and they look and they see Jesus on the rough seas walking on the water. Incredible. Jesus shows his glory to his disciples in that moment, giving them another glimpse of how amazing he is. Then we have a little bit of a hold on the miracles for a couple chapters. We see Jesus teaching about who he is, proclaiming his authority. And then we hit John chapter 9, where Jesus comes across this blind man. says he's been blind from birth. No, he's never seen like we see. And Jesus is with him, and the disciples are there too. And the disciples ask, why is this guy blind? Was it he who sinned? Was it his parents who sinned? And Jesus tells them, it was not this man who sinned or his parents, but that the works of God may be displayed in him. 
And just before this, Jesus was in the temple, if you remember. It was the illumination ceremony. Jesus was proclaiming in the midst of that ceremony with all the the lights and torches that he was the light of the world. And then he spits on the ground. He makes this salve. He puts it on the mud on the blind man's eyes and he gives him sight so that he may see. He brings light to darkness. And last week, we finished up our study of chapter 11 where we see the miracle of Lazarus coming alive from the dead. Mary and Martha came to Jesus. They were saying, our brother's ill. Can you please heal him? And instead of just healing Lazarus right then and there like he did with the official son, Jesus delays two days. And he waits. And Lazarus dies. And everyone is distraught over it. Jesus tells Martha that he is the resurrection and the life. And he comforts Mary by weeping with her, sharing that uh, he's, he's indignant and agitated over sin and death. And people were looking on and they say, could not the man who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And Jesus becomes indignant and agitated over the unbelief that prevents them from seeing his glory and he calls Lazarus out of the tomb to come from the dead. And Lazarus comes out four days dead. He's alive. Smelly, but alive. Covered in burial linens. And many believed in him, John tells us. So upon all that happening, it's where we pick up in chapter 12. Chapter 12 is the culmination of all these miracles. And people are, are, are beginning to, to see Jesus' power and glory. People are being able to finally see the value and worth of Jesus. And the more people believe, the more we see religious leaders getting, their, their hearts are hardening towards Jesus. So what I want us to see as we, we go through this text this morning is that as a result of the manifestation of Jesus' glory, there's reverence and there's rebellion. The response to the manifestation of Jesus' glory, we see reverence and we see rebellion. So as we go through this text, I'm going to try to highlight those different responses that we see in the passage. And we'll look at it in three simple headings. The dinner party, the welcome party, and the party poopers. <laughs> but first we start with the dinner party. Picking it up here at verse 1. It's six days before the Passover. Jesus returns to Bethany. If you remember chapter 11, he knew that there was a warrant out for him. The religious leaders wanted him dead. So he leaves But the Passover is at hand. He comes back. He's in Bethany. Most likely came in Friday. And uh, they have this dinner on that Saturday. Some of the other gospel accounts, just just to give some setting and context, uh, some of the other gospel accounts take this story, uh, and if you read it, they place it in like the middle of the week of that Passion Week, on like Monday or Tuesday, um, like Mark and Matthew, 
But throughout our study of John, one thing that's been evident is that John is concerned with chronology, with putting these things in order. So where I think this story actually happened, because the other Gospels, they they very thematic. They're following a theme in their story. They're telling these narratives in a purposeful place for what they're communicating. I think where John puts it is where it happened. That's where I lean. Um, Six days before the Passover. Not that that's incredibly important. Important. I don't think it changes what happens uh, because the important thing is that it happened. And we see it here. And we see it in Mark. And we see it in Matthew. But just in case you're reading the Bible and you go, wait a minute, wait. This happened here then and this happened. It happened. That's what's important. I mean, it's backed up. What I love about it, it's not where it's placed, but the picture that John paints for us. Everyone is gathered in this house. They're reclined around the table. They're sharing a meal. You got Jesus. You got Lazarus. He's not dead. That's good. It was like they're having this great big Thanksgiving meal together. And as you heard when we read through the passage, it's complete with like the Thanksgiving bickering that happens at the table, thanks to Judas. But they're there having this dinner because Jesus had restored Lazarus' life. He'd brought him back. I mean, how do you repay someone for raising a family member from the dead? I bet that's not a question any of us have really thought about. Like, how, how am I going to thank someone in that situation? I haven't. But food's always a good choice. Can't go wrong with dinner. So they have a feast as a way to say thank you, as a way to, to show Jesus how grateful they are. They give him this feast. This is what we say really the first act of reverence that we see is this meal in general. They're grateful for what Jesus did because the pain and the sorrow that they felt when Lazarus was dead can now be overshadowed by the joy in having him back and the joy of having Jesus there with them. So one way to give back to the one who gave them their brother is to have a meal. And another thing that we notice, and it would be really easy to read over it, is in verse 2. It says... Martha served. It'd be really easy to just, like, Martha served, yeah, but Lazarus was there, and then we get to Mary. But I don't want us to miss what Martha's doing. Because what Martha's doing is using the gifts that God has given her. She's a servant at heart. She likes to serve. We see that in the other stories with Martha and Mary. And she's doing this as a way to worship Jesus. She's serving him. She's waiting on him. Serving is an important piece of worship. Sometimes we forget that that, that's worship, the way we serve, the way we work, how we love one another in that way. We think that the worship is is maybe just the music that's being played or the songs being sung together, the, the teaching and preaching of the word, but the worship is serving Each role we play in serving one another and serving God is important and received by God joyfully as worship. I don't want us to miss that in this passage because 
though it's not there, I would know that Jesus is sitting at that table grateful for what Martha's doing for him. Grateful for the worship. She's giving the way she can. She's a doer. How we work and serve others is incredibly important. So that's her greatest gift she can give. That's her servanthood. That's what she can do. So I don't want us to miss that. I don't want us to skip over that. Because many serve. And that's good. And I want to encourage those who serve. And that's how they worship. So already, two verses in, we got two ways which Jesus is being reverently praised. Through the meal, through serving. Now as we come down to verse 3, we see Mary. She's worshiping in a different way. She's giving selflessly. Probably not in a way that we would tend to do. Um, Not really something we do in our culture that often if we did it might be weird. Verse 3. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. My, uh, my wife, Katie, would probably be the first one to tell anyone that one thing that I don't like is feet. Not a big fan. They kind of gross me out a little bit. I don't know why, but they do. So my initial response to reading a passage like this is to be a little skeeved out, especially when I know they're walking around in sandals, feet are gross. Yeah. <laughs> but I need to be able to separate how I feel about and what was happening in the culture. And I need to get over it because what's happening in this passage is a beautiful act of worship. It's a beautiful act of worship. Mary's at the feet of Jesus, anointing him with perfume. Now, some may be asking in your head, or not, is this the same story that Luke tells of the sinful woman who goes in where Jesus is having dinner and washes his feet with her tears and anoints them with perfume? And then the Pharisees freak out. No, I don't think it is. Um, The details seem to be a little different how Jesus responds and just all the events around it um, are different. So this is a a different foot story. Both happened. I believe that 100%. But two different different things, two different women. Um, Matthew and Mark talk about this story and the details almost line up perfectly. The only thing Matthew and Mark leave out is the name of who did it. But John gives us that. And it's Mary. And as we look closer at what Mary's doing, the first thing we see is that Mary's most valuable possession doesn't compare to the value of Jesus. Mary's most valuable possession doesn't compare to the value of Jesus. Said she took a pound of expensive expensive ointment made from pure nard. Nard is, is an extremely expensive perfume. It's harvested from a root in India. Apparently, it smells wonderful. Um, I've never smelled it. It doesn't sound beautiful because nard. 
I don't know. Um, but from what I've read, it was one of the most pleasant smelling things around. And it was expensive because of how far away it came from and how it was harvested. Judas tells us exactly how valuable it was. He says it was worth 300 denarii. 300 denarii was the equivalent of one year's wages. Think about that. Not like one year's like savings that you've set aside. One year's wage. Like everything you would have made in that year. It was very expensive. Can you imagine that? And what she does with this expensive perfume is she cracks open the jar because the way it was stored was in this sealed alabaster jar. And the way to open it was not, it didn't have like a little spritzer that you could just like spray and like walk through. Like you had to break it open. And once you opened it, that was it. You opened it and you used it. So she takes this jar, which could have been handed down as a valuable piece to hold on to from generation to generation, and she breaks it open for Jesus. And she anoints Jesus' feet. She wasn't one of the servants of the house. She was one of the hosts. And she's down at Jesus' feet. It was her brother who was raised from the dead. And she humbles herself. She lowers herself before Jesus to anoint his feet with the valuable perfume as an act of reverent worship. No matter what the value of the perfume was, Jesus was worth it and more. She doesn't care about the cost. Jesus was worth every penny. The other thing she doesn't care about is the cultural norms of the time. We see that in the fact she's doing washing his feet, but we also see how she is cleaning the feet with her hair. And what we see as we look at that is that for Mary, Jesus' glorification was more important than hers. Jesus' glorification was more important than hers. Because in order for Mary to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair, she would have to have let it down. And back in that day, in that culture, you didn't let your hair down in public. You kept it up. To, to let it down was something that a wife might do in the presence of her husband. Or, or if you did leave it down, you'd be looked down upon as someone that had loose morals. Had some negative connotations. So why did Mary do that? Well, it certainly wasn't to, to wipe her feet, uh, wipe Jesus' feet in order to be sinful in any way, but she was doing it to be humble. She was doing it, she was making every effort to lower herself before Jesus. She let her hair down, showing that she's making herself vulnerable. She's at, her, at his feet, showing her position of lowliness before the Son of God. She's humbling herself. She's cleaning it with her hair because she knows the worth of Jesus. She knows his glory. He's more valuable and more glorious than she could ever imagine. And what I like in this passage is that says as she's doing that, the whole house became full of the fragrance of the perfume. 
So if anyone wasn't, list, or wasn't really paying attention, maybe they're sitting at the table like, is that nard? Is that nard I smell? And they would, they would see, they would then look, and they would see Mary at the feet of Jesus worshiping. The aroma of worship filled the room. Mary poured out all the precious perfume at the feet of the one whose life would be poured out for the sins of the world. Think about that. What a picture of reverent adoration. We could all take a lesson from Mary to stop a little bit in the busyness of our lives to just sit at the feet of Jesus and worship. And I say our lives because it's me too. Sometimes faith and worship takes a back seat to the activities going on. We're busy people. We live in a go, go, go culture. It's easy to just get bogged down by the schedules. But sometimes you just need to slow down and glory in the presence of Jesus. Take a note from Mary. Just be at his feet. So we have Martha. She's the servant. You have Mary, also a servant, but the giver. I look at her as the giver. She's giving her most valuable thing to Christ. And then we have Judas, the buzzkill. <laughs> Verse 4. This wonderful picture's happening. Mary's on the floor. She's anointing his feet with perfume. And Jesus said, or Judas says, What? She couldn't have given this to the poor? John tells us, Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And John tells us he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. It's almost like Judas has this attitude here of like, oh, really? You're going to use that expensive perfume to worship and bless Jesus? Don't you know you could have used that for the poor? Like this stuck up, like, he's, he knows the proper way to have used that. Like he's putting on his act, like, I'm going to impress Jesus right now. But the problem is he's trying to act humble when Mary is displaying what it is to be humble. And something that's really evident in this passage is is John, he doesn't want anyone to think that what Judas said at the dinner um, was the least bit from good intentions. You can just see the hurt of John as he talks about Judas when he just says, immediately, he says, Judas is scary, and then he says, you know, the one who's going to betray Jesus. And I think the reason John does this is because Judas didn't just betray Jesus, he betrayed all the other disciples. And you can feel the hurt that, that John has. And I, I, that hurt comes out in just describing what exactly was Judas thinking. He was thinking not about the poor, but he was thinking about his pockets. John didn't know that at the time. No one did, except Jesus, 
who sees clear through Judas's comment. Judas's response is a prime example of why we, all of us, need to check our hearts before we start checking other people's. We need to check our motives before we start nitpicking others. As Pastor Lou always says, before we judge, we've got to relate. It's easy to judge Judas and go, what a jerk, huh? Judas. But, how much can we relate to him? Where we think, no, 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 this is what I would have done, what you're doing. Or look at that person, there's no, you can't be genuine doing that. And we start acting self-righteous as opposed to just seeing the heartfelt worship of another. Reminds me of the, the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18 that Jesus t- talks about how the Pharisee and a tax collector go to the temple and you have the Pharisee who's lifting up lofty prayers about everything he's done. And then you have the tax collector in the corner beating his chest in agony just praying, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, The one who humbles himself will be exalted, and the one who exalts himself will be humbled. We need to check our motives before we judge others. That Pharisee in that passage looked down on the tax collector who was humbling himself before a holy God. And when we're in the position of Judas, of the Pharisee, and we're in that spot, just pray that the Spirit of God works in us and brings us from thinking we're up here to where we are down here before Jesus. That's what, we, that's what we want. And in this passage, going back to that, Jesus makes no mistakes in telling Judas what he thinks. He tells Judas, leave her alone. Almost to say, Judas, stop. You don't get it. Just, just stop. Stop talking. And what Jesus says is interesting. He says, leave her alone that, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. What does that mean? I mean, she broke open the jar. She used the jar. It can't be resealed. It wasn't normal for something to be used, some here and some there. So, so what's going on? What is he talking about? Something that I have found helpful in reading the Bible is when I see a little number, I look down at the bottom, and boom, there's a footnote to help me when I don't understand And that's what I needed as I read this. I'm like, what is it talking about? Thank you, ESV. On the footnote in your Bible, if you have an ESV or maybe another Bible, um, it says that this could also be translated. Jesus said, leave her alone. She intended to keep it for the day of my burial. And then other translations, as I check those out, because I'm like, what is going on? The NIV translates it, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Same thing. New King James says, leave her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. So as I, as I read this and as I look at commentaries, what Jesus was, was saying was not so much that she's going to use the rest of this perfume literally when he's buried, but what he's communicating is that, yeah, Mary had this for the day of my burial, but she's using this at the proper time and the proper purpose because, as he tells Judas, you always have the poor, but you do not always have me. Mary's using it at the right time because his burial's coming. His death is coming. 
The cross is coming. Jesus uses this, this act of worship as a way to point to his atoning sacrifice on the cross. And some wonder, did, did, Mary, did Mary somehow know that Jesus was actually going to die that week? Did she grasp something that Jesus had said better than most? I don't think so. I have no idea. But Dr. D.A. Carson says in his commentary, there is no clear evidence that Mary or anyone else understood before the cross that Jesus had to die. She meant this to be an act of costly, humble devotion. But like Caiaphas, if you remember from chapter 11, like Caiaphas, she signaled more than she knew. End quote. See, Mary's, Mary's act of worship, she was just pouring out this perfume that she had at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus uses this to tell them, the day's coming. The cross is getting near. You're not always going to have me. She intended to save this for my burial, but this is a good time to do it because that's coming quickly. So, so far, we've seen a couple of responses. We've got the reverent responses of giving Jesus a meal. We've got Martha's serving. We've got Mary's selfless anointing with the thousands of dollars worth of perfume. And we get an example from Judas of some self-righteous, misguided worship, um, which we do need to see. And as we move on in our text here, moving to, we're going to go to verse 12, we'll see another aspect of worship. Those were all very personal. Now we get more corporate with the welcome party. We'll skip past 9 to 11 for now. We'll come back. Um, but now we're going to fast forward to the next day. Jesus is entering the city of Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And he's coming in um, on Palm Sunday, which is the Sunday prior to Jesus' resurrection, the Sunday before he goes to the cross on Friday. And this is called the triumphal entry. Now, I'm not going to go into this in great detail. Because one, you're probably like, you just spent a half hour talking about the other thing. How are we going to go through the triumphal entry? Um, Pastor Lou actually already preached on this back in March. We looked at it in the Gospel according to John here. So I'm just going to hit one little aspect of it. But if, if you missed that and you want to know what's going on here in verses 12 to 15, you can go to our website, kingschapel.net. The sermon's called The Triumphal Entry. You can check it out there. Or um, I think we have some CDs from that sermon in the back that you can take and listen to as well. So you can get the full scoop on what's going on in this part of the passage. What I want to look at as we explore this is how the, this, these crowds that we see are responding to Jesus. Because all, all, everything we're looking at is the response to Jesus, how he has shown his glory, how he's shown his power and authority. And we want to look at how they respond. So verse 12, The next day the large crowd had come to the feast and heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees, went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. This crowd of people gets word that Jesus is coming, the one who raised the dead, who raised Lazarus from the dead, And they want to see him. They want to meet him. 
They know he's powerful. So they go out, they gather these palm branches. And they line the streets. And when he comes in riding on the donkey, they're shouting, Hosanna! Which is a a, a worshipful cry of salvation. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. See, they had heard how Jesus performed these miracles. They knew that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And they hear he's coming. So what do they do? They get together. They welcome him into Jerusalem. They respond to his manifested glory in adoration and praise. They're crying out corporately, Hosanna. They're crying for salvation. They're declaring him as king together. Do they understand exactly what they're saying? I think they have one idea of what they're looking for. The military king who would come and overthrow the Roman Empire and raise up Israel. So they were right. He is the king. And he's the one who has the power to save them. But it wouldn't be in a militaristic overthrow. He'd be humbly giving his life for his people. Giving his life for his children. That's why he rides in on a donkey, not a war horse. He's humble. But they're crying out this salvation. And I think just like Caiaphas, just like Mary's anointing, as they're crying this out, they're saying one thing, but they're, they're communicating so much truth. He was the king who would come to save And they're corporately declaring this in the streets. Verse 16 to 18, John gives us this narrator's aside. He he does remind us that no one, not even the disciples, really knew what all this meant until after the resurrection. No one knew exactly what was going on until all the dots connect when Jesus rose from the dead. But even without the full picture, Verse 17 tells us people were bearing witness about Jesus. People were flocking to meet the one who could do amazing things. Verse 18, they just had heard what he was doing. They're like, we want to see him. People were bearing witness in the streets in Jerusalem, all over, and was making the Pharisees angry. And before we get into our last point, this gathering of people in Jerusalem to usher in Jesus, to, to say Hosanna, to praise him, reminds me of why we gather here together week after week. We come together to recognize our need for the gospel, to recognize our need for salvation, to praise and, and give adoration to the one who saves The difference is we're not just hoping that maybe it happens. We know it did. We have the gospel. We have the word of God. And we come to celebrate that sin has been conquered. Death has been defeated by Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. He is the king. He he has risen. He is reigning. We come together to worship. We have hope because of the greatest sign and miracle that Jesus gives in his dying on the cross and raising from the dead. 
And because of that, we gather and we shout his praises. We sing Hosanna. We give worship. Because the gospel calls us to respond. Now, up until this point, we've seen good responses, positive responses. Serving, sacrificially giving, corporate praising. But the other side of the coin is this rebellious response. So we're going to backtrack to verses 9 to 11. And look at the party poopers. Verse 9. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there at Bethany, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away, believing in Jesus. Unfortunately, not every response when Jesus displays who he is is positive and nice. Some responses are downright rebellious to the work of God. That's what we see here. All these people, they're coming to see Jesus. They're coming to see Lazarus. I mean, Lazarus was dead, and now he's not. That's a big deal. And they're coming, they're flocking to see him. And the chief priests are like, this is a problem. And the more people that that came, the more people believed. And for them, that was the opposite of what they wanted. We, last week, we, see the plot, we saw the plot to kill Jesus. We've got to get rid of him. If we get rid of him, we'll save our nation. But now, people were not only coming just to see Jesus, they were coming to see Lazarus. And as they saw Lazarus, as they encountered him, they were being pointed to Christ. That's what it says, verse 11, because on account of him, many of Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So now Jesus is pointing to Jesus. Lazarus is pointing to Jesus. All those who heard of the signs and miracles are pointing to Jesus. So the chief priests decide, now Lazarus has got to go. Now Lazarus has to die. I mean, that's the ultimate party pooper right there. When we are bent on getting our own way, it seems as though there's nothing we won't do to see it through. That's what the chief priests are doing. They desperately needed Jesus to be stopped. They needed this ministry to stop. And they couldn't stand the thought of it going any further. And we kind of see this this cycle uh, of just one, one sinful thing leads to another sinful thing. Like first they're like, if we just get rid of Jesus, we're gonna be good, we're gonna be fine. That's the plan. And then they see, oh no. Okay, Lazarus is now pointing at Jesus. So, all right, now we've got to kill Lazarus. If we get rid of him, we get rid of him, then we'll be good. And you can just see how that would progress. Where does it end? It doesn't really. We see throughout the book of Acts, people getting martyred for the sake of the gospel. People getting martyred around the world for the sake of the gospel. Because people want to see it Stop. Because the gospel calls us to respond. We're either going to respond in worship or rebellion. Martha, Mary, good examples of reverent worship. The chief priests, they rebel. They're seeking a solution and they're choosing 
They're choosing sin over Savior. And just like Judas, we got to relate. Now, I'm not talking, we're not talking murder, but we know what it is to sin and to fall into the destructive path of sin, lead to another sin, lead to another sin. And we run. We don't want to face God. We don't want to see the truth of what we're doing. We don't want to see the goodness of God. We want to seek our own agenda. We want to neglect those things of God. Day by day. And that's why we need, we need to come before Christ and confess and repent, even when we don't want to. Because that repentance, that, that the option to even do that is a gift. We can relate so much to these Pharisees and these chief priests and the way we say, no, God, I, I don't want what you want for me. I want to do what I want to do. I don't want what you're having to offer. I'm going to do my own thing. But eventually we're going to hit an end where we're brought to the feet of Jesus. Because God's desire, it, it, he, his desire is, is not that we stay enemies with him, but that we see the ugliness of our sin and rebellion and that then we see the goodness and glory of Christ and that we just are undone at the sight of it and we come before him and believe. That the Spirit would soften our hearts, that we may recognize the beauty and the truth of the gospel. The Apostle Paul, he's a great example of, of, he was, when he was, before he was called Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus, and he was persecuting Christians. I mean, he was one of the foremost persecutors of them. Jesus literally meets him on the road, calls out his sin, knocks him off his horse, says, why are you persecuting me? Demonstrates his power and glory. And Paul, whose heart was so hardened towards Christ, becomes one of the biggest influences for Christ in the world. More than half of the New Testament we have here is written by Paul. God can take the hardest of hearts and soften them. Even in our rebellion, Christ is sufficient and powerful enough to save us. We talk about confession, we talk about repentance so regularly here because being able to confess and be forgiven is what leads to rejoicing. It's what leads to to celebrating salvation, to shouting Hosanna, to knowing that being forgiven brings peace, brings hope, brings joy. How will you respond to the truth of who Christ is? The all-powerful God of the universe who performed all kinds of miracles, who raised Lazarus from the dead, gave his life for us while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He makes us alive. He rose from the grave. He conquered sin and death so that we could believe in him, that we could have faith in him and trust in him for every need, that we could serve him like Martha. We could give all to him like Mary, that we could worship and praise him as the crowds. 
How will we respond to Jesus' manifested glory? Will we run in rebellion or bow in reverence? Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that we would see the splendor uh, of your majesty, that we would see your glory through all that you've done in the gospel. We know full well that we are sinful people in need of your grace. But Lord, you call us to confess and repent. You give us that chance. You give us that opportunity. Lord, I pray that we would lay all at your feet this morning. Lord, we thank you that you are good and that you are just and that you forgive us for our sin because of what your son Jesus Christ did on the cross, bearing our wrath and our place. Lord, that your son humbled himself that we might see how you love us. Help us to humble ourselves before you this morning. That we would see we need you above all else. That we would respond to your glory and worship and reverence. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.